Hey everyone, it's Ariel Hawani, and I wanted to let you know that each and every week I'm part of a great program called the Ringer MMA Show. I host it alongside two absolutely brilliant minds. Their names, Chuck Mendenhall and Pete Carroll. And every Thursday, a new episode drops where we preview the weekend in mixed martial arts and react to all the biggest news. Plus, after every UFC pay-per-view, we give you a post-fight show. So this is what you have to do. Just follow the Ringer MMA show on your Spotify app so you don't miss an episode. We'll talk to you then. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Joining us now, he is back from NFL Media. It is Eric Edholm. Eric, how are you? I'm soaking up the last few minutes of summer here, man. As you know, for uh, for we uh, NFL types, it's uh, it's fleeting at best. So yeah, camps opening everywhere pretty soon this week, and uh, yeah, just get a little sun and uh, enjoy the kids uh, while they're still young. Yeah, and so what happens after that? When do you come back up for Aragon? Because is it after the NFL draft? Obviously, you're a big draft <laughs> guy. So when do you get another break? Yeah, I'm not one of those sickos who immediately like, you know, oh boy, you know, Mr. Relvin gets picked and I start flipping to 2024 guys. Like obviously, I, you know, by now I've 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 caught a few games of of kind of the consensus top 50 guys, but I can watch them at, at my leisure over the summer. So, yeah, I mean, I obviously split my time like probably 60-40 NFL/draft, but yeah, there's there's a there's a, a period of May and June where I can kind of loose uh, loosen up a little bit. I got you. So you wrote this week or last week, I should say, now that we're recording on Sunday about the Patriots as they get ready for training camp. You had the subplots to track and you wrote O'Brien's main mission will be to get enough from Mac Jones this season to give the Patriots a clear picture on whether he's a long term answer. And so, look, we all understand how bad the situation was last year with Matt Patricia. But Mac also wasn't good. And one of the things that came to mind when I was reading your article was what does it look like if he is the answer, right? Is it slightly better than what he was as a rookie? Because eventually it gets interesting with Mac here because you're going to have to make a decision on that fifth year option or if you're going to give him an extension. And I go back to his rookie season, 223 yards a game. So it's not like they're putting up crazy numbers, 92.5 passer rating. And that's pretty good for a rookie. But then, of course, last year, he takes the step back. And if you look at some of the stuff, like he really got in trouble on obvious passing situations. And I know right. a lot of this has to do with the scheme and all that. But 
when they were trailing last year, seven interceptions compared to one one leading and three one tied. And I get a lot of guys are going their numbers are going to get worse, but Max are like significantly worse when his team's trailing. So I just look at it. I feel like in 2021, as Patriots fans, we were kind of like relieved where it's, oh, this is a confident quarterback after what we saw in 2020 with Cam Newton, where he couldn't throw the ball. And it's nothing against Cam. It's just his shoulder was so messed up where he wasn't a confident passer anymore. But now I'm kind of looking at Mac. Do you think he can be a guy in this league that is a difference maker or can he just sort of be part of maybe a solid football team? Because the thing that always sticks out to me with Mac is like, where is the special trait that he has, right? right? Like he doesn't really, Herbert's arm, Jalen Hurts' ability to run, right? Joe Burrow extending plays. I just don't know what Max sort of superpower is at the quarterback position. Yeah, it's a fair question. And, and you know, just for context on last year too, I mean, as you pointed out, there, there are plenty of schematic issues and, and, you know, skill position, talent issues. And, you know, over-reliance on the running backs and, and, you know, the million things, obviously the play calling and, and the whole, you know, hope and pray approach seemed to, to, I mean, everybody knew it would backfire and it did. It was one of the few times where I felt like people questioned Bill Belichick publicly before something happened on, on something he was planning to do and have it go exactly the way we all expected it to. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just, it's kind of stunning, but Obviously, Bill's back. You know, Mac taught him the uh, the Bama offense when they were kind of two ships crossing in the uh, Tuscaloosa night, I guess. But um, yeah, I think you're right to question whether there is a special trade. That's why I gave him a second round grade. Was I, I said I think he does a lot of things really well in college coming out, but like you said, pretty good athlete. You know, I think by, for quarterback standards, even in, in this league now, I would say he's middle of the pack or whatever. Um, has some grit to him, but boy, you know, that some of the traits that we may have praised a lot at Bama, like, you know, winning a championship in a pandemic season and, you know, following to a tongue of Iloa, who was, you know, obviously a legend there and doing what he did, um, you know, basically saying, I want to go to Alabama to be, to beat out the best. It, we didn't see that side of him at all last year it was almost like this this anger and grit and like he just didn't handle adversity that well in my opinion i'm not there but just watching and and seeing the frustration play out it was just uncomfortable at times but yeah completing a high percentage of his passes putting the ball in the spots that give the best yak potential i think doing a better job of avoiding sacks you know you saw that at the end of his rookie year where he was a lot better at getting rid of the ball. And I thought, you know, in terms of avoiding sacks, but last year took a step back in, in that. So was it an aberration or was that more close, you know, closer to what, you know, we should prepare the bottom for Mac to be. Yeah. And it's a great point too, in terms of like comparing how he handled adversity at Alabama to what he did with the Patriots last year, because there were times where I remember doing pods after the game room like he is this is like unacceptable behavior. The stuff that he was yeah. doing, even if like we all know that Patricia is doing a horrible job, but like right. the jumping up and down and the it's yelling at the it. sideline, it was yeah. he has got to get and to his credit. He admitted that he's got to get that under control. So hopefully that change is going forward. But I'm, I'm really intrigued to see what it looks like with Bill O'Brien, because it's obviously it's a huge year for Bill Belichick and it's a huge year for Mac Jones entering the season. So based on that, it yep. brings me to the Hopkins thing, right? So. I've talked about this a ton on the pod, but this is how I would present it. They had him for a two-day visit. They're obviously very interested in the player. 
We know that Bill Belichick had that thing at the Arizona Cardinals game where he's talking right. to Hopkins before the game. They had significantly more cap room than the Tennessee Titans. And what we found out is the offer was similar to the Titans, except the Patriots made it more incentive-based than the Titans. So you're trying to find out if your quarterback is good enough. You're obviously trying to win football games. The Patriots are not like in this complete rebuild. They're trying to win right now with Bill Belichick as he's trying to chase down Don Shula's record and all that and get back to the playoffs. The yep. owner has put pressure on the coach. He said multiple times this offseason, alluding to the fact that he wants to get back to the playoffs. So I just don't understand why you're not more aggressive in your offer. I just, is it more of this whole idea of this is how we've always done it? Yeah. I just feel like if it was me, I would be in more desperation mode than the Patriots were when they were going after a guy like DeAndre Hopkins. Maybe they thought the fit was not going to be perfect with maybe some of his practice issues. But if that was sure. the case, then you had him in for two days and you did offer him a pretty sizable contract. Right. I, I, yeah. You, you pointed out all the fair points of this thing, which is it. I was I was assuming after things kind of dragged out, I was like, unless the price goes down or unless there isn't that other team, I don't know that he goes to New England. I didn't know it was going to be Tennessee, but it just sort of felt like, you know, either Hopkins was waiting for the price to go up at one of those two places or someone else like the Chiefs to sweep in or, you know, the Bills or somebody else. And it just never happened that way. And Tennessee up there off or New England didn't, I, you know, I mean, as somebody, I talked to him or somebody who worked in New England, you know, this is years ago. And after they left, they said, you know, Bill's just hardwired on these things. I forget who the contract we were talking about at the time. I remember why didn't they, you know, up the offer half a million to keep whatever the guy was. And he's like, yeah, that's, they, they just put a number on a guy and that's the yeah. number, not, not 1% more, not a dollar more, you know, and is that the right way to do it? I don't know. But Certainly their their long-term success gives you an idea that they have an idea of what players are worth. But at the same time, I'm with you. I, I kind of thought that the need was maybe there now. You know, maybe there's something in one of these rookie receivers. Maybe we're sleeping on Taekwon Thornton. Maybe there's more in the tank for Devontae Parker. I don't know, you know, or or maybe Juju's a little better than we think. And um there 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 could be enough to forge a, a decent unit, but you know. If DeAndre can play a full season, he's he's still good. Yeah, and he'd clearly be the best guy on the Patriots and by a wide margin. The Patriots yeah. needed him more than most other teams in the league. So it is it continues to aggravate me. So I did want to get to <laughs> you mentioned some of these weapons. They add Mike Isecki and Juju, as you mentioned. Yep. Devontae Parker, Taquan Thornton, Kendrick Bourne. We'll see how much he plays. Matt Patricia will see if he's still in a doghouse, even though Matt Patricia's not here anymore. But <laughs> we know that <laughs> It's amazing that that guy had a doghouse with how bad he was at his job, right? <laughs> right. Like, it's unbelievable. <laughs> but Gusecki to me is interesting because, and yeah. Bill has basically said he's basically a receiver. And yep. two years ago before Mike McDaniel took over, when he was actually a featured player with Miami, 62.5% of the snaps came in the slot, which was the fourth highest rate among tight ends. So yep. he's had a ton of success in the middle of the field. The 15 contested catches two years ago, the second most among tight ends. Hunter Henry, two years ago, 61.6% .6 of his snaps in the slot, sixth highest rate among tight ends. That went down a little bit this past season, and his numbers went down, too. He had seven less touchdowns, almost 100 fewer yards as well. And we know that Juju likes to work in the slot, too. I just wonder, and I know they've been sort of enthusiastic about going back to using the two tight ends a lot, like we saw years ago with Bill O'Brien, not comparing these two tight ends to right. those two tight ends. It's a different thing. But do you think there's going to be an odd man out here in this situation in terms of Gasecki, Juju, Hunter Henry? Or do you think those guys are all going to be significantly featured? 
It's a good question, right? I mean, you have to, you have to, at some point, you know, Henry obviously has had stretches where, you know, he was just a missing man, you know, and you, and you'd, oh yeah, he's playing today, right? They throw him a ball yeah. or whatever. And so, <laughs> you know, he's obviously can be a red zone threat. He's the inline guy. I mean, he can do a lot that maybe isn't, you know, always visible. So, you know, I can see his volume and I get, I don't have the target numbers in front of me, but I'm guessing they're still pretty low. You know, Gusecki had games too, where he was just out there running routes in Miami. I feel like they never really had a plan for him. I think what the Patriots will do is have a plan for him, which is, you know, maybe he gets some of those, those, you know, Aaron Hernandez type plays, right. Where, where you, you could almost use him. I mean, they use him a couple of times as a runner. You know, I could see some creative uses with Gusecki. I know that's not exactly what you want to do with it, with a tall guy like that, but you know, on a, on a, end around or a little quick uh, sweep or something like that. Sure. I could see it. You know, I could see him lining up in the backfield and running a wheel route and just doing different things that maybe we haven't seen him do before. I mean, he essentially was that, that same sort of slot receiver in Miami, but I never felt like they had a great design for him and they, they worried too much about what he couldn't do. You know, I think the Patriots are always going to have a, what can you do for me? You know, and we'll exploit that as best we can and use other guys to fill it in. So you know, Juju's going to get his volume, I think. I mean, I, I would be surprised if he isn't their, you know, their their possession guy, if you will. I mean, just their their chain mover and, a, you know, a, a steady part of what they do. Yeah, and it's a great point on Gasecki is if you look at it, and you mentioned in the article the touchdown percentage in the red zone was the worst in the NFL for the Awful. Patriots last season. Yeah. And Gasecki's a big target down there. And Going back to like his combine, the vert was ridiculous. He was, he was number one among tight ends that year. So, you know, he's a, a jump ball guy, contested catch guy, as alluded to. So yep. and Bill O'Brien loves the guy. He recruited him at Penn State. So I'm yep. sure that Bill O'Brien has like a really big plan for Gasecki. So I'm excited to see what he can bring. But you mentioned Juju and I was looking at last year. You mentioned a big yak guy. And I'm guessing that's part of the calculus, why they liked him over Jacoby Myers, a guy that could do more things after the catch. But if you look at it, so. Last season in a high-octane offense, of course, 933 yards, 58.3 per game. The per game was the second highest since his, basically it's the second highest besides his second year in the NFL. So a really good number in terms of the numbers. So what do you think are fair expectations? Because he seems like the default number one guy, but can he have more than 933 yards that 58 per game or because they're not going to throw it as much as Kansas City is it less than that like what do you think would be a successful season for Juju I get it you're not paying him like top of the line money but they obviously yeah. want really they need a lot of production from him. what do you think is a fair expectation yeah I mean I I think I guess it will find out pretty early on and obviously their Patriots are a team that can vary their game plans one week to the next but once we've seen a few games we'll know is he a five or six target guy, or is he a nine or 10 target guy per game? And they may need him that much. You know, I, I guess I still have questions about, you know, who's your other sort of bedrock at wide receiver, right? I mean, there really isn't that one guy. I mean, born like you said, if he's put the pass behind him, we've seen some interesting moments out of him where he's, he's talented guy. He can run, you know, but yeah, Parker, I don't know what to make of him. I honestly, you have a better probably feel for for what he's capable of, but it obviously will give a flash every now and then. And you say, oh yeah, that was the guy who was picked pretty high in the draft, but never put it all together and been consistent week in and week out. And Thornton obviously is a a, a real talented, but maybe 
you know, a, a limited role in terms of what he does best. But yeah, I, I think it might be closer to the, you know, maybe it's not nine, 10 every week, but I could see him getting six, seven, eight uh, targets a week. And, and that turns into four or five catches. And, you know, at, at 12, 13 yards a clip, that's 60 yards. You know, it could happen. It's crazy to think you go from Patrick Mahomes to Mac Jones and, and somehow up your <laughs> volume, but it's what happens in a, in a Kelsey offense. But yeah, I, I would be stunned. I, I could see him being a very workmanlike thousand yards if he gets there. Yeah, the Parker thing, I've never been a big Parker fan since he came here. I know like the number in terms of the yards per reception, it's good. It's 17.4 yeah. because it's always down the field. But yep. the problem is I feel like Matt gets in trouble. Like one game he had three interceptions when he was targeting. Throwing to him, Parker. right? Yeah, I just feel like that's not the type of receiver that works with Mac. And then they go ahead and they extend him. And I think part of the calculus there is you gave up a third round pick. So you probably want to keep him around and. Yep. He's really the one guy they can play out there on the outside. And I feel like that's why Kendrick Bourne sort of, I wonder what his role is going to be. And then the Thornton thing, I think they need him to be productive because that's high draft capital, a second round draft pick on yep. a receiver on a team that if you're going to get involved early in the NFL, this is the perfect team. If you're a receiver, they, they need production there. So we'll see if he can get it going. Obviously not a great rookie season, had the injury and whatnot, but obviously yep. they want to get more out of him. And look, the injury obviously screwed him a little a little bit as well. All right, and Eric, I want to get to this offensive line because you look at it, they bring in Riley Reef at 35 years old, and I know that pro football focus isn't the be-all, end-all, but 51st of 99 tackles in pass block win rate, 55th in run block rate, and then Trent Brown, a guy that has historically struggled with motivation, he was 52nd in run blocking grade from pro football focus, 30th in pass blocking, and he was flagged 13 times, which is yeah. tied for the third most in the NFL. So this tackle situation for the Patriots, and I know it should be improved just by the fact that it's going to be a new scheme and it's not going to be Matt Patricia, but how concerned are you about the tackles for the Patriots? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's, that's going to be one of the, you know, obviously it's a big deal given the, 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 the change in scheme and the, and the fact that you have a quarterback who's, you know, come under fire a little bit and you want the conditions to be as ideal around him as possible. And for years, New England had this, you know, at least respectable group, if not a dominant one sometimes. So that's obviously very much in question. Trent Brown to me, I don't know how you count on him. I mean, you know, wouldn't it be something if, if Calvin Anderson and what uh, Connor McDermott are your starting tackles week one yeah. and, and, you know, <laughs> we, we wouldn't be the craziest thing he's done. So you know, obviously, uh, and, and they, the, the O-line coach they brought back, I was talking to somebody who mentioned these, uh, the, is it Adrian, yeah, Adrian Clem? Clem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bill picked, Bill drafted him too. That's right. Yeah. And I mean, I think, uh, talked to somebody who knows him sort of professionally, has worked with him before. They said they got a good one. So that was obviously a, another issue that, that didn't get enough press was probably the coaching on the offensive line. So if they can get, back to just better execution, fewer penalties, fewer mental mistakes, and not even worried about the dominant reps. But yeah, it's got to be the tackle question. That's the biggest, although the Onwenu uh, injury, I guess you have to, you know, at least prepare somebody like uh, Jake Andrews or a CD. So or somebody like that to to get ready just in case. So because he was probably their, you know, their best blocker last year. Yeah, no doubt about that. All right. So 
I want to get to the defense for a second here because you mentioned that they had really good numbers, but they didn't stop elite offenses. And one of the yeah. things that stuck out to me was the receivers, right? So Justin Jefferson, 139 in a touchdown. Stephon Diggs, 7 for 92 a touchdown. T. Higgins, 8 for 128 in a touchdown. They had Marcus Jones in them at times. Marcus Jones yeah. felt like he was giving up like a foot, right? Diggs again, 7 for 104. And the Jack Jones situation obviously still up in the air right now, but Christian Gonzalez comes in with a ton of hype, and you obviously cover the draft. What did you make of the pick, and could he change the defense when it comes to that, having that legit number one, or is that asking too much from a rookie? It's asking a lot. Uh, I mean, we've obviously seen last year Sauce Gardner and uh, and Tariq Woolen have terrific rookie seasons, and and both guys didn't just make plays on the ball. They, they covered well, too. It was, you know... Sometimes we can get, you know, sort of caught in the fairy dust of all the INTs or, or pass defended. That also sometimes means you're getting picked on a little bit, but that wasn't really the case for either one of those guys. So we've seen, you know, we have recent evidence that, you know, you can you can have a corner step in and, and if they're physically and mentally ready. And I think Christian Gonzalez is is. You know, there there was a little bit of a whisper out there early in the season. Did he love to tackle? Was he the most physical guy? You know, those those things kind of made their way through the the scouting circle. But I, I think as the season went on, you know, he kind of got off to a little bit of a slow start there. I think it was actually the Colorado game coming back, if I recall, um, where he had his first sort of breakout game. You could just see his confidence really burst and. You know, it's OTAs, who knows? But the reports that I read were seemed to be that, oh, yeah, he's he's getting reps with the ones. He's looking good. He looks the part. He moves like a guy his size you wouldn't expect to be able to move. So linear, uh, springy, athletic, you know, fluid hips. Um, I, I'd like to see him just just sort of prove that he can be that that, you know, you got to tackle a corner for 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 Bill. And, and I think that's yeah. going to be a big thing. So. Um, the coverage, I think he'll do okay. He'll give up some passes, no question, but but he competes. Yeah, I'm excited to watch him because it just, going back through the history of Belichick, when he has elite defenses here, he always has that corner, whenever it's Ty Law, That's right. Stephon Gilmore, he rented yep. Revis for a year, which that may have been my favorite one, just to, like that was the ultimate higher gun. And yeah, I know Asante. Asante Sam, yeah, yeah he, he may not be a big fan of Bill, but he was very good when he played for Bill, right? I mean, those guys. I follow him on Twitter just to see what he says about Belichick. You know, like, that's my favorite part right there, you know? It's unbelievable. I don't know what it is. Like, he really despises Bill. Like, dude, you had a really good career for the Patriots, although, I mean, you would have liked an interception maybe in the Super Bowl following the Yeah, you did drop season. one, Asante. Yeah. Let's bring it up. I like the guy, but I'm just saying, yeah. you know, you have one go through and, your hands. And Bill did help you get paid, even if you didn't get paid by him. You got a big right. contract. Bill's part of the reason that you had success. Big I'm picture. Not saying, yeah, yeah, like I, JC I Jackson, I, same thing, you know? Yeah. It's like, good for him. No doubt. All right, so Keon White, massive, 285, uh, excuse me, Keon White is massive, 285 which is in the 91st percentile, yeah, 30 reps, 89th percentile. So he went, I didn't realize all this, like before the draft, he went, well, obviously I wasn't, he wasn't on my radar, but he went to Old Dominion as a tight end. Right. And then he transferred over to defensive end. Then he ends up at Georgia Tech, seven and a half sacks, 12 starts last season. So does he sort of, does he have like a high upside based on the size and whatnot and sort of the newness to the position or is the Patriots, apparently, they would have considered him at 17 if Christian Gonzalez wasn't there. That's what some of the reporting was. But how do you feel about Keon White? Do you think he has a role as a rookie? And how do you think he projects going further? 
Really interesting player. Um, you know, there there was a little bit of a buzz about him down at the 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 senior bowl, just in terms of the physical traits. I mean, he looked the part absolutely. The question is where his best spot is, you know, like where where do you want him as a kind of a edge setting, you know, seven technique or a five? Do you want him, you know, kicking inside on passing downs? I think there's this question of he might be better inside. I, I, mm. you know, he, he's not too much smaller than, than the guy like Christian Barmore. You know what I mean? Like in terms of just his mass, right. I mean, I think he could grow into that kind of a, a frame almost. So then again, you could also have him drop 10 pounds and, and be that I'm trying to think of like a bigger kind of edge, like a force guy, like a Rob Ninkovich, maybe I'm, I don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. that's not a perfect example, but this dude can move, right? I mean, you, I won't say he's like Trevon Walker was last year with the number one pick, but the same idea of think of a, a big edge who can kick inside and also drop in his feet, but not terribly refined instinctually and stuff, but boy, really, really talented player. I just was going to be fascinating to see where he landed to see what system he's in. You know, guy goes to New England with that profile. You you think this, this is a pretty good place for him, right? But then again, I mean, they've had, you know, I'm trying to think of some of the, the guys, Ron Brace and Marquise Hill and other guys who didn't ever quite, you know, that second round D tackle DN kind of type. And, you know, so obviously it's not a sure thing, but this year, I you know, maybe he's a rotational guy. I don't know that he's going to be, you know, you're starting five tech week one or anything like that. Yeah, interesting. It was an interesting pick, I thought, at that point in time. Yeah. Because I thought, like, D-line edge, that was kind of a strength of this team, right? I mean, you're talking about Uche, who I would hope that at some point they talk about an extension with him. because And that finally, may be a sign that they don't want to pay him. I don't know, you know. so You could be right, because, I mean... I think about it like going back to last year's we were waiting for the breakout for so many years and it happened and yeah. him and Duggar, right? Both those guys are guys you would think. And now I think they'll eventually get Duggar extended, but I do w- I wonder. Think so. Yeah, I think they got to keep him because he's sort of emerged as a leader on the team, too. So I'm interested to see what they do with Uche long term as well. So, yeah. hey, in the division, the Bills, they've had this, I don't know, this weird Stefan Diggs situation, even though Josh Allen says the media has made it up. But you look at him, obviously, last year. They had the DeMar Hamlin situation, and then they lose in the playoffs. And I'm thinking about this team where it's like, okay, so AFC Championship game, brutal loss the next year, and then they right. lose again this year early in the playoffs. And it feels like at the beginning of last year, people look, are they as good as the 07 Patriots? Can they go undefeated in all this? And I just <laughs> wonder about this Bills team. Do you think it's more likely this year that they actually – take a step back than maintain what they're doing? Or do you think they're still going to be one of the top tier contenders? Because I th- I think the Bengals are better than them now. Like, I would put the Chiefs and the Bengals ahead of the Bills in the AFC. Head to head, they they look like the better team Cincinnati did for sure at the end of the year. You know, there's no question, not only in the, you know, the the brief time we saw them in the in the DeMar Hamlin game, but also in, in the playoffs. And, and you know, I, I think there was a lot of weight built up. I mean, losing Von Miller was a big deal. You can see yeah. the clear night and day, you know, before and after uh, look with them on their defense. And I, I thought maybe they could, they could survive that. You know, they were really good at keeping teams out of the end zone last year. Their point total allow was really low, but you saw the cracks in their defense. Like they were, you know, it was like this dam that was just welling with water and, and it really did pour out in that Bengals game. I thought so. Yeah. I mean, it just, 
it, it's fair to ask whether there's a little more volatility with this team. Um, you know, they, they're handing things over to James Cook, which could be a great thing, or it could, you know, not work out. They are, you know, still don't really have that that compliment to Diggs. What if he throws a fit or what if he leaves or what if something happens or he, God forbid, he gets hurt? Gabe Davis is your number one, your two tight ends. I mean, I don't know. So all of a sudden that puts a lot on Josh Allen and a lot on the defense and a lot on Sean McDermott, who, you know, kind of, you know, Leslie Frazier isn't there anymore. You know, he's now calling the defense or supposedly and, you know, boy, I'm not saying he's going to get fired, but that's that's a lot on one team in one year. Maybe they channel it and turn into champions, but uh, you, you get Aaron Rodgers week one. You know, obviously, the AFC East is going to be very tough this year, um, and they they have a tough, tough, tough December schedule. December really into almost Thanksgiving time, yeah. All right, so you mentioned the Jets in there, and everything is great in Jetland right now. They're getting ready for hard knocks, and Aaron Rodgers is comparing Garrett Wilson to Devontae Adams. We know they have a really good defense with Sauce Gardner, who had an outstanding season. I mean, you can make an argument he's already the best corner in the NFL, but that offensive line was an issue last year for that Jets team it was it was a bad group and it doesn't appear that it got too much better last year they were 30th in pass block rate according to pro football focus and you have an older quarterback so this Jets team is that the one glaring issue that they have or do you think that this thing works out for them bringing in an older quarterback a la Tom in Tampa or do you think there's going to be some growing pains here yeah, that the the whole wait for Aaron Rodgers, right? We started hearing the whispers in in February, and then there was the Ayahuasca retreat, and then there was you know the combine and everything else, and you know we, they like two months passed by, and then they get him, and you're expecting, boy, you know that that first round pick they're coming up to get, you know they they want to get somebody to to you know Broderick Jones went the pick before him, and what are they going to do? Was that their guy? So they never really solidified the tackle position, but they do at least have some options there, I think. So if Makai Becton is, I mean, he looks great on Instagram right now. I don't know if he could play, but, you know, he looks terrific in in how he's slimmed down. He was way overweight uh, off and on for several years now. But, um, but you know, he's he's a wild card. Is he going to do it? Maybe, maybe not. Um I guess they have, uh, while well, Dwayne Brown coming back at age, what, 39 now? I mean, he's, you know, they're counting on him to kind of be a rock like he was down the stretch last year. You know, again, it's a, a little bit of a leap of faith. Max Mitchell had some some health issues at the end of the year. He actually looked pretty good when he when he stepped in. Um, and then they drafted a kid in round four. Who was it? Uh, Carter Warren? Yeah, from, uh, from Pitt. And probably more of a right tackle. So, you know, you have some some obstacles here, right? I mean, I don't think, I mean, I guess Brown could play either side. I guess Becton technically could too, but again, age, health, you know, all these factors, I think their interior is going to be okay. They got a battle at center too. Tipman, the, the center from Wisconsin uh, is, is, is a good player. He could beat out Connor McGovern, but the big issue like with new England, I would say is a tackle and, you know, defensively, they're good. You know, they're maybe missing a, a, a stud tight end some health issues in the running back but i would say that's the biggest all right eric and just before we let you go miami so i feel like obviously getting vic vanjo is a huge move for them to sort yeah. of clean up that defense they bring over jalen ramsey which it feels like they're going after all these stars and we already know they have tyree kill they have jalen waddle Tua last year was first in yards per attempt he was third in pass rating he was really good when he was actually 
on the field. I look at this Miami team, and I know like the Jets got most of the headlines because Aaron Rodgers is now a member of the Jets. I feel like Miami on paper may actually be better than the Jets, but then I would have to bet on to his health. And it's just, it's really difficult to sort of project where this Miami team is going because the court, and I know he's doing MMA and all that. So maybe that helps him out. Like, I don't, I don't know how that's going to help him out, but I just feel like this is a really good team. But if I'm a Miami fan, which obviously I'm not, I'd be really worried that this, we saw what happened last year. Tua goes down, you're done. Now, maybe they feel better about the backup situation not having Teddy Bridgewater and you have Mike White, maybe they feel better there. But still, if you have to go to Mike White, it's not like you're winning at a high level like you were with Tua. So I just feel like this whole Tua situation is going to hang over them all season because you just don't know what the guy. You just It's the great unknown, right? I mean, it's and it's literally from his ankles, which he had redone in college, up to his head, his multiple concussions last year. I'm not trying to make light of it. I'm just saying, yeah, you know, the, the hip. I mean, every portion of his body has been affected in a, in a significant way before age, what, 26 or whatever. So, yeah, that's that's it. If, if you know, there were times early in the season you said, boy, he and Mike McDaniels can really make some good music here late in the year. How hurt was he? You know, how concussed was he? All these different questions factor in. I know there are people out there convinced he's not a good quarterback. I say he could play. I, I don't know if he's top six or seven, but he could play, you know, and so. That's it. And especially like we were just talking about with the Jets and before that, New England, uh, the offensive tackle situation, you know, you have Toronto Armstead, that's good, but your blindside, Austin Jackson, possibly first round pick who hasn't quite ever, you know, last year was a wash basically, you know, so again, it's like maybe the bills are the favorites just because they have a respectable, solid, you know, sort of sturdy offensive line. The other three teams at least have one, if not multiple major questions. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I realize that, you know, you look at their approach, it's very similar to the Rams trading picks for stars and, and those sorts of things. And, um, you know, obviously some elements of the, the, the Shanahan stuff and San Francisco, given McDaniel's background and, um, you know, both those teams have had tastes of success. I mean, whether you, you know, multiple Super Bowls between the two of them, um, you know, I, I wouldn't be shocked if the Miami Dolphins put it all together if Tua stays healthy. But like you said, how do you know? Yeah. Yeah, I'm really high on that. But it's the biggest question, maybe in the division, is yep. the health of Tua. All right. That is Eric at home from NFL Media. Eric, thank you so much for the time man, and enjoy the rest of the summer that you have left. Only a couple of days, man. Yeah. Next time I'll come in something better than beachwear here. But uh, you got it <laughs> any other time, man. The U.S. women's soccer team is taking on the world, and you can take home bonus bets every time they win with FanDuel. Because right now, new customers get $100 in bonus bets guaranteed, plus another $10 in bonus bets for every USA win. Just download FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app and sign up between now and August 3rd. Then place your first $5 bet to unlock your bonus bets. That way, you'll be all set to bet on everything from total goals to player props all tournament long. However you want to play, don't miss your chance to get $10 in bonus bets for every USA win, plus $100 in bonus bets guaranteed. Make every moment more with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com slash RG. First online real money wager only. $10 deposit required. Refund issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets, which expire in seven days. Restrictions apply. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Eric Edholm. That was a ton of fun. I cannot wait that the NFL season is just about here. Cannot wait to get that going. And 
It's also a busy time for the Red Sox, right? We just watched them. We're recording late Sunday night. They just took two of three from the Mets. And now you look at it, we're creeping closer to this trading deadline. And there's a lot of good stuff going on with the Red Sox right now, despite the fact they dropped two of three to Oakland last week. A really good weekend to take two of three from the Mets. And part of the reason they've been playing so well is Tristan Casas. So I wanted to do a metric man breakdown of him. Before that, though, I just love watching him play right now. He is so fun at the plate, that unique approach where he has such a command of the strike zone. And we've mentioned on the pod before that he just yells out when the ball's out, out or up. Like, this is very entertaining. There's not a lot of guys that can entertain you by the way they take pitches. It's like basically Tristan Casas and Juan Soto. And I'm not comparing the players. I'm just saying Juan Soto has like a swagger about him that he has such a command of the strike zone. We're seeing this with Tristan Casas as well. And that second home run, off of Scherzer on Saturday. The second one that he hit, man, that was like he looked at Scherzer. Yeah, I knew what you were coming with. Stares at him a little bit. And it wasn't even a bat flip. He got out of the box really slowly. And then he sort of just tossed the bat. That was pretty badass. And then, now I was at the game Saturday night. And it was a ton of fun. But So I didn't see this like in person. I didn't see Rafael Devers getting so pumped up because obviously I was focused on Casas hitting the home run. And I don't know if they showed it if you're watching on Nesson on Saturday night, if they actually showed this on the broadcast, but they did tweet it out. Nesson did. This is where I saw it on Sunday morning. They tweet out Raphael Devers and how pumped he was. I'm like, this is a really cool moment at Fenway Park where Tristan Casas has been one of the best hitters in Major League Baseball as of late. And you're seeing the guy that's the face of the franchise having this moment where he's just so happy for Tristan Casas hitting that home run. It's just an absolute bomb. So I wanted to get to this. So if you look at April, getting into this metric man breakdown of Casas, the walk rate has always been there. 17.4% in April 7th. So that's really good. But we all know in April, he wasn't getting results, right? The strikeout rate was really high, 29.3%, 153rd out of 181 qualifiers. That's always going to be relatively high just based on the approach. So I'll get into that in a second here. But his batting average in April was last in Major League Baseball. 133, 181st of 181. His on-base was 283, which was 157th. The slug was 293, 173rd. And the OPS was 576, 172nd. And this is to the point where people were upset about him. There were really fans that thought maybe they should send him down. It's like, no, you got to stick with the process. This is one of the best hitters in your organization, one of the best young players you have. you got to ride it out with him. You can't just demote him, right? It made no sense. That's why I thought it was nuts when people were actually suggesting that. You needed to give the kids some time, especially... When that walk rate number was there, eventually it was going to happen for Casas. So here was part of the problem. So in April, he had a 36.7% hard hit rate. That's balls off the bat 95 plus, which was 117th out of 181. So he wasn't hitting the ball hard often. So that meant that he didn't barrel up a lot of balls. Just 8.2% of his batted balls were barreled. Okay, that was 93rd out of those 181. And he is a guy with a really big launch angle, right? He hits the ball in the air. So a 16.1 degree launch angle, that was 51st. So the launch angle was there. The problem for him was he wasn't hitting the ball hard. So he's just hitting these lazy pop-ups or striking out, right? Because the timing wasn't there. And what was up with the timing was he wasn't catching up to fastballs. So at times it was almost like he was too patient. But when he did swing at fastballs, he wasn't making good contact. And quite frankly, he wasn't hitting them. Six for 49 against fastballs in the month of April. 122, he had a 241 on base percentage and just a 306 slug. Also had 15 strikeouts in plate appearances that ended against fastballs. That's 25.9%. You should not be striking out nearly 
26% of the time in your at-bats that end in fastballs, and the fastball you need to do damage against. And so what happened early in April, teams found this out really early that he wasn't catching up to fastballs, so he was just getting fastballs all the time because he hadn't proven he could catch up to them. And that has changed. Really, if you think about Cassis this season, he has been good since the start of May. Now, I'm not talking about his defense. It's a different conversation. But at the plate, he's been good since May. And every month, he's getting significantly better to the point in July, he's hitting 333 entering play on Sunday. These numbers haven't updated after the game tonight. But 333 entering Sunday, 19th out of 181. So he went from 181 of 181 to top 20 in average in July, right? The on-base percentage, 440, eighth. The slugging percentage is 810 in the month of July. First in Major League Baseball, first. Tristan Casas is slugging better than anybody in the fucking sport right now. Then you look at the isolated power, which takes the slugging percentage and it subtracts your batting average, is at 476. (laughs) It's almost 500, so everything is extra base hits, right? It's ridiculous. And the OPS is 1250, which is third. The walk rate that we mentioned which is a good sign in April that he was commanding the strike zone. I mean, I guess the only thing you could argue is a little too hesitant to swing, right? He's a little too patient, but 16%. So it's actually come down a little bit, but that's an elite number. That's 12th in Major League Baseball in July. And the strikeout percentage has gone down 24% in July. Not that that's an elite number. It's 109th out of 181. But if you look at that number in April, it's a 5.3 percentage point difference, which is obviously a massive gap. So what is happening now is he's hitting the ball harder. Now, he doesn't have to hit the ball hard all the time because he's just so powerful that he hits little pop-ups that look like a pop-up that just goes out of the ballpark because he has that launch angle. So the hard hit rate, 43.3% in the month of July, that's 76. So it's not an unbelievable number, but it's up 6.6 percentage points. And when you have a launch angle like he does, which is 21 degrees, right? He's got that swing where everything's going in the air. That's 13th in Major League Baseball. So now that the hard hit rate is up, the strikeouts are down, that means he's barreling up everything. So he's barreling up 20% of his batted balls. So that is 10th in Major League Baseball during that stretch. So basically one out of every five batted balls that he's hitting are barreled up. That's why we're seeing these numbers get so high with Tristan Costas is he's making so much good contact. Remember that barrel percentage in April was at 8.2%. And this month, it's at 20%. So we're talking about almost a 12 percentage point jump. That's why we're getting these results from Casas. And part of it, too, is the fastballs that we mentioned. He was not catching up to in April. How about the numbers against fastballs in the month of July? 10 for 26, and at bats that end against fastballs. 385, 484, as it pertains to the on-base percentage, a 1077 OPS. So he went from not being able to hit fastballs whatsoever remember we told you the number 122 to now clobbering fastballs with an ops over a thousand at 1077 and striking out way less he's south of 20 percent in the strikeout still not a great number at 19.4 percent but it's a lot better than nearly 26 percent of the time and the fact is he's doing damage when he makes contact against these pitches as evident by the 385 and the 1077 ops so that's the big thing he needed to prove that he could catch up to fastballs And now he's doing damage against fastballs. And the ceiling with him at the plate is just so high. That walk rate, the discipline to go along with the launch angle, the fact that he hits everything in the air, and that raw power that he has, the approach is just tremendous. And I am really intrigued to see this thing going forward for Tristan Casas because from my perspective, this is just the start of things with him. And the guy that I come back to in terms of the comp is Matt Olson. Okay, so Matt Olson, if you look at his numbers this year, 
Big walk guy too, 13.8% on the season, which is 13th. Remember, I just told you, Casas is at 16% in July. The slugging percentage for Olsen is fourth in baseball at 577. The OPS is fifth at 940. Really good numbers for Olsen in Atlanta. And it's actually very similar in terms of Casas, the approach, right? And if you look at Olsen this season, he's at 32 home runs, which is second in Major League Baseball behind only Shohei Otani. And if you look at Olsen, he's a big dude, 6'5", 225. Casas is actually bigger as it pertains to the weight. He's 244, but he's also 6'5". So you can kind of see how the approaches are similar. And the fact that if you look at Olsen's numbers, 30 home runs every year since 2019, with the exception, of course, of the shortened COVID year in 2020. So this is a guy that consistently hits 30 home runs a year. If we look at Casas right now, he's at 14 on the season. He's going to hit north of 20. And when I think about it, this is going to be his lowest year. He's going to hit 20 plus home runs in his rookie season. And that's going to be the start of things. So what I think is going to happen with him going forward, you have found a guy that is going to hit in the 30s in home runs most years because of just that raw power that he has, the approach, the fact that now he is adjusted to hitting major league hitting. This is a guy now that you can stick in the middle of your lineup for the foreseeable future and you can expect 30 home runs a year. I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility whatsoever. In fact, I expect that going forward just in terms of how talented he is and how unique the approach is. So I do think this is sort of one of the themes of the season now, that these young guys are really playing well and you actually feel like there's something here. There's a core developing, right? Now, I get you have a lot of teams across the sport that have good farm systems and we know that the Red Sox farm system needed to get better, and it certainly has. But when you actually look at the big league level, I think that's what makes it real for me. When you see these guys coming up to the big leagues and playing well, and I know I'm not I'm not talking about Heim versus Dave Dombrowski. I'm just talking about the young guys, right? Like Duran, Bale, and Casas, we know these are all Dave Dombrowski guys. But those guys hitting has been such a positive development this season. Duran is the leadoff hitter, 372 in terms of when he hits leadoff. Second in Major League Baseball, minimum of 50 plate appearances. Excuse me, 90 plate appearances. 407 in terms of the on-base percentage, which is fourth, 675 slug, which is first, 1081 OPS, which is first, okay? So he has been one of the best leadoff hitters in the sport, although in the game tonight, he did get picked off at first and he got gunned down to the plate, a little too aggressive, but I'd rather him be more aggressive or too aggressive than not aggressive enough, right? So as a leadoff hitter, he's been elite. Bayo, despite the bad start against Oakland, has proven to be a top end of the rotation guy. And I'm not saying he's definitively your number one going forward, not saying he's like a Shane McClanahan level pitcher, right? Where it's one of the best pitchers in the sport. But I think when we look at what he's done, you can safely say that, hey, this is a guy that's going to be in the top end of your rotation for years to come. And now this Cassis thing, you have a legit thumper. And this is to go along with Rafael Devers, who we know is signed up long term, hit an absolute fucking bomb tonight. Yoshida signed up for the next four years after this. And then you're going to get Story coming back as well. Now, obviously, Casas, I alluded to it, he's got to be better defensively, minus six defensive runs saved at first base. That's the worst in Major League Baseball, and part of the reason that for a stretch there he wasn't playing every day is because he was so bad defensively. But if you think about your core, you have four guys in Duran, Casas, Rafi, and Yoshida that are locked in long term that are going to be hitting in the top five of your lineup for the next four to five years. And we know that Meyer eventually is going to make his way up as well. So the reason this is so important is you can start working from a position of strength in terms of free agency and trades, right? The Sox for the past couple of years have been trying to cover holes. Now it's like, well, hey, you don't really need to add power to your lineup. Now you always like to add power, but now it'd be like a luxury, right? You have Devers, you have Casas, you have these guys, Yoshida's an excellent hitter, 
but you have all these guys that are going to hit for power for you. So that's not something that you need to address, right? It's something that they needed to the past couple of years because the power numbers for the team were going down, right? Especially after Renfro left a couple of years ago, the Red Sox are really bad in terms of their power numbers in the 2022 season. But now you can look at it and say, okay, well, let's spend big on a starting pitcher. Now, maybe you say, hey, you don't want to pay a guy that's close to 30, but if it's a trade, right? Now that you're working, you're building up your farm system. I just feel like now you can single in on exactly what you need rather than covering all these different holes. And one of the things that's emerged from my perspective is this lineup, you feel really good about the top end guys. Like you have an elite player in Rafi, an elite hitter in Yoshida. Yoshida entered Sunday, number one in the American League in batting average. This guy may win the batting title in his first year. I know a lot of people say, oh, batting average is not important. Well, it's it's pretty impressive when you win the batting title. I get it. There's more important offensive stats, and I go through them all the time here on the pod, but that's pretty impressive. So an elite hitter in Yoshida as well. And Costas is a guy that you feel really good about going forward. All right, I did want to get to this as well. There was a report in The Athletic about the Dodgers have interest in Kike Hernandez. Of course, he was there for a couple of years, as we all know. And from the report, Los Angeles would also consider a reunion with Kike, a league source said, if he's willing to fit into kind of a niche role that the Dodgers are seeking to fill. Okay, so obviously we talked to Cotillo about the need to get rid of one of these middle infielder type guys that the Red Sox have. I just don't think Kike is going to be around much longer, obviously, A, based on the reporting, but I just really don't feel like there's a spot for him on this team going forward. If you look at him, he still lasts in terms of fan graphs war, minus 1.4, which is 149th, as I said, out of 149. The batting average 218 is 136 out of 149 qualified hitters. And Kike, look, he's been a positive center fielder, two defensive runs saved in 87 innings. And remember, he was actually at 14 defensive runs saved in center field in 2021, which is tied for six among all outfielders. And he played less than the five guys ahead of him on the list. So if you look at Kike, here's the thing, just a 314 on base percentage and a 652 OPS against lefties. Now, I'm guessing that the Dodgers would say, hey, we can put him as a defensive replacement late in games and all that different type of stuff. And we feel confident about the defense. It's just probably not going to play him that much at short, although he has been, to his credit, better at short when he plays there now. But if you look at Kike in terms of those numbers against lefties, the Dodgers may say, well, in 2021, with the Red Sox, the on-base percentage against lefties was 361 and 850 OPS. Really good numbers. And then if you look at his first full season, or his last full season, I should say, in L.A., before COVID-19, a 758 OPS against lefties. So pretty good. So they know his swing. Maybe they think they can fix something in terms of at least maybe he can be relatively productive against lefties. I wouldn't bet on that. But if you're Kike Hernandez, this is potentially really embarrassing, right? He came to the Red Sox with the hope that he'd be playing every day. And he was really good for this team in 2021. I'm not taking that away from him. We know how great he was in the postseason, right? But now he'd be going back to the Dodgers to be a platoon guy when the Dodgers basically didn't think he was ever an everyday player. And now it's like, well, I tried to be an everyday player with the Red Sox. It didn't work out. And now I'm going back to the Dodgers. Remember like Kike in the lead up to the season. He was anointed like the everyday shortstop. There were expectations for Kike Hernandez and he just has not been a good player. I just feel like unfortunately for Kike Hernandez, this is going to be a really bad look. And I think it's different from the Red Sox to the Dodgers. Like obviously that would be embarrassing, but I just really think it's going to be tough to keep Kike here for this reason. He came into the season, as we mentioned, as an everyday player. Now he's basically what? Like a defensive replacement? You can't have that on the team. I just think it'd be a bad vibe going forward with Kike Hernandez. So from my perspective, I would expect Kike to be gone, and some of this reporting would tell us that. But man, 
What a horrible season for Kike Hernandez. And this is just, it's embarrassing at this point. All right. So Verdugo got Sunday off. It's been a real struggle for him in July. But before I get into that, this is just a mind-numbing thing that I've come across as of late. Do you realize how good Verdugo is at home and how bad he is on the road? How about these numbers? So at home this season, 318, 392, 519 slug, 910 OPS. Elite. On the road, Verdugo hits 224 with a 297 on base percentage, below 300, 333 slug, and a 631 OPS. It's like two totally different players when he plays on the road. So the average drops 94 points. The on-base percentage drops 95 points. The slugging percentage drops 186. And the OPS drops 279 points. It's just incredible. I don't know what it is. Like, does he need the energy of the crowd? I don't. I can't even comprehend how bad this is. The difference, like, obviously you have weird splits in base. Not weird splits, but splits that make sense, right? Like a left-handed hitter is going to have really good numbers against righty, which, righties, which we'll get into in a second here. And he's not going to hit lefties. Like, something along those lines. But... For a guy to be this bad on the road and that good at home, which he hasn't been good at home lately, but you get my point. It's just, it's mind-numbing to me. It's unbelievable that it's like that, right? Just incredible, incredible stuff. But anyway, the second thing I wanted to get to before I get into just July, Verdugo's not hitting left-handed pitching at all this season. 229, 333, 303 slug, 636 OPS. He's not doing anything against left-handed pitchers. And that 303 slug... 146th out of 156 qualifiers that have enough at-bats or plate appearances, I should say, against lefties. 146 out of 156. Not hitting lefties at all. And it's, again, he has been horrendous against lefties. So this is just another concern in terms of, and I went through some of this with Cotillo the other day, about giving him an extension. He's not hitting left-handed pitchers at all. And so here's the problem. Kike is hitting just 186 against fastballs from lefties. That number was 298 last season. And he did not have a great year, but he hit almost 300 against fastballs against left-handed pitchers. He's not hitting fastballs against lefties. So I'm not even talking about the junk. I'm saying he can't hit fastballs right now. And so staying with this theme, look at Verdugo in the month of July. 127 average, 181st out of 181 qualifiers, 222 on base, 175th, 255 slug, 172nd. He is not hitting at all in the month of July. In fact, by batting average, he's the worst hitter in Major League Baseball in the month of July. So look, the defense has been elite this season. We're not going to take that away. 12 defensive runs saved, tied for six among outfielders. So he has that going for him. He's playing good defense. And I know he's been an everyday player for this Red Sox team for a couple of years now. But I would say this about Verdugo. He has got to be careful. I gave you those numbers against lefties. And start to think this thing out. Ref Snyder is a 469 on base percentage against lefties. That's the best in Major League Baseball. The best. Out of anybody in Major League Baseball, Rob Ref Snyder has the highest on base percentage. His 919 OPS is 23rd. So he's playing against lefties. It would be malpractice not to play him against lefties, right? And he does play against lefties. So let's say those days where it's a left-handed pitcher on the mound. Turner plays second, which we've seen more of late. And Yoshida DHs, Okay. So you have Duvall, who's going to play against lefties. And I know his numbers are not great against lefties this season, but based on the track record, you're going to play Duvall. And Verdugo doesn't hit lefties, so you'd rather have a righty up there anyway. And then you have Jaron Duran. So Jaron Duran on the season is hitting 270 with a 723 OPS against lefties. Not to say that's great, but Verdugo, again, to remind you, 229 and 636. And Duran is much more dynamic, right? And I know I alluded to the fact that he ran into some outs in the game on Sunday night, but... The guy makes things happen when he gets on the base paths. And if you look at 
Duran entering Sunday in the month of July, 426 average, which is second, 471 on base percentage, third, 809 slug, which is second behind who? Tristan Casas. Casas is one, and Duran is two. And then a 1279 OPS, which is first in Major League Baseball during that stretch. Eight doubles tied for first in the month of July. So he's been legit one of the best hitters in the sport recently, right? So Verdugo has to pick it up because look at it in terms of getting back to this fastball theme. He's six for 34 against fastballs in general in the month of July. So that's 176, a 282 on base and a 294 slug. Not doing anything against fastballs, lefties or righties. Then you look at pre-July, 47 of 151, that's 311, a 398 on base percentage and a 510 slug. It's kind of the opposite of what has happened with Tristan Casas, where Casas wasn't hitting fastballs, now he is. Verdugo was hitting fastballs, now he's not whatsoever. So he was clobbering fastballs, he's not doing anything. So whether it's fatigue, whether it's something mechanical, whether it's some injury we don't know about, which I don't think that's the fact, I don't think that's actually the case. Maybe it's just normal wear and tear. But he needs to figure this out because I know it, it may feel like he's like an everyday player and I know how great he's been defensively for the majority of the season. But man, it's tough to justify playing Verdugo against lefties if we don't see, like now maybe one of these guys gets moved in the next couple of days, whether it's Duvall or something along those lines and it clears up that spot easily. But they're going to have to start to make a decision. When there's a lefty on the mound, is Alex Verdugo playing every day? Because we have this season worth of data where he's been shitty against lefties and he's not hitting in general right now. So I do wonder if we see a little bit of this going forward where eh, Verdugo's not in the lineup today and they say, hey, we're just giving him the day, whatever. But it would make sense not to have him in the lineup against lefties. I'm just pointing that out and I hope he gets back on track because they really need him to get going. All right, Rafi, another bomb tonight. That's now 24 on the season, which ties him for seventh. And if you look at it, this long stretch he's been on, and I've been tracking it since the 21st of June, this is when he started to get hot. So 23 games entering Sunday. If you look at the uh, the 97 plate appearances he has, 412 in terms of the on-base, 14th, 616 in terms of the slug, 15th, a 1029 OPS, which is 12th, obviously the bomb he hit tonight as well. And one of the things you look at with Rafael Devers right now, similar to Tristan Casas, it's all rockets in the air. The barrel percentage is 15.9%, which is the 20th best. So that's the amount of balls he barrels up. And here's the big thing. The launch angle is up from where it was prior to this streak. It's at 14.8 degrees. And Rafi's basically having the best season of his career in terms of launch angle. So it means he's doing a lot more damage in the air, which is something you certainly love to see from Rafael Devers. But I am happy to see Rafi completely locked in because you think about it right now. Yoshida's locked in. Turner's basically been locked in all season long. Casas is locked in, Duran is locked in, and this is all happening. The only guy you're really concerned about Verdugo right now, but this is all happening at the perfect time where we told you, we gave you this stretch on Thursday about all these tough pitchers that the Red Sox are getting ready to face right now. And to take two or three of the Mets, that's a really nice thing heading into this series coming up when you're thinking about Atlanta in San Francisco. So they got to keep hitting the way they're hitting if they want to get another pitcher and put some pressure on the front office because... Hey, man, just get in the dance. That's what I always say. Just get in the dance. It's baseball. You never know what's going to happen. And this team is playing really well right now. And I will say this about Fenway. Saturday night at Fenway was awesome. I was a little upset, honestly, at first, because originally the game was supposed to be at 410 and they had to change it because of the rain on Friday, which I don't know if anybody saw those videos. That was insane, the amount of rain at Fenway Park. But nonetheless, I really like those Saturday afternoon games. I think I've said this on the pod before. 
the 410 start times because it's just, you know, middle of the or late afternoon. The game's over before seven. You can get home or if you want to hang out, you can hang out. Like it's just a good time. And Saturday night at Fenway is pretty electric. And I'm always a big Friday night at Fenway guy, but Saturday night was electric. Like that game was awesome. The atmosphere, and I give Mets fans a lot of credit. There was a ton of Mets fans there. And I get a shorter trip coming from New York, but it was kind of cool being in Fenway on Saturday because you had chance going back and forth between the two fan bases. I'm not saying it's like Yankees level, but the fan bases were going back and forth. The one thing though that the fans agreed on, there was a universal Yankee suck chant. Like <laughs> the Mets fans hate him, the Red Sox fans hate him. So I had a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. And you could tell just, I know sometimes we get aggravated with the Red Sox. I mean, Mets fans are miserable and I get it. Highest payroll in Major League Baseball. This team is a complete dumpster fire. Some of the issues that they have defensively, it's just an absolute mess. Although, oh, speaking of defensively, another Little League home run from the Red Sox. Alfaro throws it into center field over, like, a complete mess. I mean, so luckily they win that game. Not luckily. They deserve to win that game. They beat up on Max Scherzer. But just to put a bow on this conversation as it pertains to the Mets, a lot of fun. That was an awesome weekend. I really enjoy, like, a lot of these different fan bases. But the Mets is a team that doesn't come to Fenway a lot. That was a really cool fan base to have at Fenway Park. All right, a lot more to get into coming up next. Paul Pierce will not stop talking. Welcome back into Off the Pike. And Paul Pierce, man, he is all over the place right now. So he was on the Is What It Is pod. He had this to say. Put Shaq on my team. Put LeBron and Bosh with me. I'm not going to win one. You put me, LeBron, and Bosh. We're not going to win one. We're not going to win a couple. Who's the better three-point shooter? This is he's comparing himself to Dwayne Wade. Is he a better score? Okay, average more points than me. I can shoot the three. I can mid-range. I can post up. I can get to the line. Who's the better score? For a long time, my skills went underappreciated because I didn't get to play with great players. And then I got to play with KG and Ray past their prime. <laughs> like, how it just subtly takes a jab at KG and Ray. Four years earlier, you put me, Ray, and KG together. You think we ain't walking away with three ships? I, now, I agree with that. They would have won multiple championships. Heck, if KG doesn't go down and... 2009 they won a championship and they should have won in 2010 if they could have just fucking rebounded in the fourth quarter but you get my point is that he he is right when it comes to that but man he is obsessed with Dwayne Wade remember he did this a couple of years ago when he was at ESPN and Jalen Rose is doing the show with him and he just started reading his resume saying that Dwayne Wade was better than him. it was pretty funny actually but I don't know what it is he just loves talking about Dwayne Wade now it feels like to me what he's doing here is he feels like people are just forgetting about him and his career. And this is probably, if you think about it from Pierce's perspective, the least attention he's had since before he got to Kansas, right? He went from playing in the league, and for the latter portion of his career, he was on a really relevant Celtics team that won a title, and as we mentioned, played in the finals again. They had epic series against the Heat, too. And then he goes to that Nets team where they're a mess, but they're relevant because of the magnitude of the trade, and then he goes to the Wizards, he hits that big shot in the playoffs, he says, this is why they brought me here. So Pierce was really part of the NBA conversation for a long time, starting in 2008. Not to say that he wasn't before, but I'll get into that in greater detail. But he was not one of the most popular players in the league, but he was certainly relevant for the latter portion of his career. And then after his career, he goes to ESPN, and he's on their main studio show for the NBA, and... You think about it from that perspective, and I really like that crew, by the way, with Michelle Beadle and Jalen Rose and Chauncey was there too before he took the Blazers job. But remember, Pierce, after the Celtics beat, or the Celtics beat the Bucks in game one in 2019 when he was doing that show, the Kyrie team, 
And after game one, Pierce said the series is over. The Bucks can't figure out the Celtics and the Celtics ended up getting reverse swept. But anyway, it was just at that time, he was super relevant. He was part of the NBA conversation. Pierce was front and center on the main show. And then he had that whole the video that, of course, surfaced. And he's at that point, I mean, he had the ESPN job. Then he's like, go by ESPN. And I know he's still doing stuff NBA media wise, like Showtime. He's that Showtime thing with Rachel Nichols. He does stuff with KG, but it's not the same as being part of one of the two pregame shows in the NBA, right? You have the two pregame shows and post-game post shows. You have the TNT crew, which is the best, and you have the ESPN show. He was on one of those shows, and I really did feel like they've kind of found something with Pierce and Jalen Rose. It's kind of funny, and Michelle Beadle, I liked her too. But anyway, I'm not saying he doesn't believe what he was saying about Dwayne Wade. He probably does. But this is how you make headlines when you say stuff like this, when you say stuff about a guy like Dwayne Wade. But before I get into the Dwayne Wade comments specifically, I do think Pierce is overlooked in terms of the NBA conversation. Now, the final stretch of his career from 08, he was properly appreciated. From 08 on, he was properly appreciated. No doubt about that. He was just on some horrible teams early, and it wasn't his fault. Now, they had the one run to the conference finals, but nobody thought that team was winning a championship, right? Especially... When you looked out west and you had the Lakers and the Kings were really good at that particular point in time. And eventually the Celtics, they move on from Antoine Walker. But pre-08, you think about it, nine seasons, they had some really bad teams. Just the four playoff trips, two first-round exits, a second-round exit, and then, of course, I talked about that trip to the conference finals. And there were some really bad seasons in there for the Celtics. We're talking about 24-58 and 58 in the tank here, 33-49, and 36-46, and 35-47. and 47. But look, obviously, this is not all on Pierce. Like, the, it's not Pierce's fault. The organization was a mess. But I really start to think about it. What could have gone differently in the early Pierce era in Boston, if you will? We all know the Patino thing was a complete disaster, right? And you think back to it. The Celtics did actually have a path to being a relevant team in the 2000s prior to 08. And that was Chauncey Billups, right? Remember, Rick Patino traded him in his rookie season. Can you imagine how crazy that would be today? A guy that was taken third overall in the draft was actually traded in the same year. Not like a draft night trade, like going back to like Antoine Jameson traded for Vince Carter. We're talking about during his rookie season, the team selected him and they traded him in the same year after picking him third. Think about some of the recent third overall picks. Scoot Henderson just got drafted, of course. Jabari Smith for the Rockets, who just went and played summer league and he lit it up. Evan Mobley, LaMelo Ball. Like, imagine one of those guys getting traded in their rookie season. It's just to give up on a player that early, it's just malpractice. So not to see the upside there with a guy that you obviously had a high opinion on in 1997 and to trade him for a guy like Kenny Anderson, who's I'm not saying Kenny Anderson's an awful player. He's a pretty good player, but it's not like Kenny Anderson is ever going to be one of the top five point guards in the NBA. And you had a guy that you thought as recently as a couple of months prior to the trade, that this is a guy that has potential to be, and I know they had issues like, is he a shooting guard? Is he a point guard? But my overwhelming point with this is you had an opportunity. If you were just patient and built this thing out with Chauncey Billups for this team to be relevant, at least starting in like the 04-ish range. So you are a young team with Antoine Walker and Paul Pierce. It was not the time to go get a veteran point guard to try to speed up your building process, Right. And look, I get it. They made the one trip to the conference finals, but their ceiling was never high with that group. That was as good it was, as it was going to get with that team. Like making the conference finals is kind of a surprise. Remember that? Like that was not something that we expected. So Chauncey Billups, it took him a while to sort of get his career going and he was kind of scarred by the Celtics experience. 
But with better coaching and actually showing faith in a player that you took third overall, maybe he blossoms here. And look, I do think if you look at Pierce, he probably early in his career, I'm not talking about when they won the championships, early in his career, or the championship, early in his career, he was probably taxed with too much of the playmaking duties. So if you look at Pierce in 04, he was actually north of five assists per game. And the Celtics that season were 18th at assists per game at 20.4. So it was really Pierce doing most of the creativity, if you will. You're looking at the Chucky Atkinses of the world. like They didn't have good situations as it pertains to point guards. Chauncey that season in 04 was 5.7. Then he goes to 8.6 two years later, 7.2 the year after that. So it isn't even just about the assist numbers with Chauncey Billups, but Pierce never really had that table-setting point guard until the Celtics got Ronda, right? And Billups was coming into his own in 04. Of course, he led the Pistons to a championship that year. He won the finals MVP. And that's really when, if you look at it, he started really running good offense. He controlled the entire offense. He controlled the tempo of the game. Remember, that Detroit team played really slow, and it was Chauncey that was controlling everything. Obviously, that team was known for its defense, but he was their floor general. And it's perfect. Like, that cliche, the floor general, that's what Chauncey Billups was. And Pierce was a play finisher, right? He was a great scorer, could get to his spots, and he was right, like get to the elbow, he could get to the free throw line. But having a guy that could get him the ball in his spots where he didn't have to do all of it, that would have made Pierce's life so much easier. And look, Pierce is putting up great numbers at the time, but having a guy that could take the burden off the table would have been massive. So, I mean, you look at it, 02 to 06 window, Pierce made the All-Star game every year, and he was having individual success. But it didn't feel like he was a guy in the league at that point, right? Like, at that time, it was Allen Iverson, it was T-Mac, it was Vince Carter, it was Jason Kidd, it was Kobe, it was Duncan, it was Shaq. Even, like, Chris Webber was more popular with those Kings teams. Duncan, as we mentioned, was, like, Duncan, Shaq, Kobe, it was their league. And T-Mac was a really popular player. Vince Carter was a really popular player. So it really took Pierce until 08 to really be front and center in terms of the national stage of the NBA. And by that time, when you're talking about the other stars in the league, LeBron was LeBron. Kobe was Kobe at that point. Kobe was, at that point, the best player in the league. Nash was doing his thing, and he was winning MVPs. And Dwayne, to the Dwayne Wade point, he was already a champion. Duncan had already won four titles, right, in terms of his success in the league. Chris Paul was starting to emerge in 08-09, right? So it was like from a star power perspective, he was never going to get into that group because for so long, he was on bad teams that just were not part of the conversation. It's tough to get into the star group that late in your career. So I do think if you play out Pierce's career differently and he's playing with Chauncey Billups, like they're growing up together as NBA players, maybe this is a conversation that would have been different. And look, you look at Dwayne Wade. He comes into the league in 2003 and he's immediately a stud. His second year in the NBA, he averaged 24 points a game, 6.8 assists. He averaged 27 points per game in the playoffs that year. His second year in the league. And they beat the Hornets that year in the first round. So he was immediately becoming a star, immediately a guy. And Pierce, as good as he was, and as good as he was in 08, especially in that Cavs series, he never got close to the popularity that Dwayne Wade had, right? Now, you can look at, say, just look at Jason Tatum right now. Tatum is a legit guy in the league. He's had deep playoff runs. He's playing for a historic franchise like the Celtics. The league is pushing Tatum. Tatum's getting all these commercials. The league is pushing Tatum. Pierce would have gotten a shove from the league. Because the Celtics, they were irrelevant in the 90s. Of course, they had a lot of bad luck when you're talking about the Len Bias situation. A lot of bad luck for the Celtics organization. And if that young team started to have success in the early 2000s with Pierce, say 
the hypothetical being that Chauncey Billups was still here and those guys actually meshed and Chauncey developed quickly here with the Celtics, but he would have had an opportunity to be really relevant in the league's conversation. But like those other guys, Vince Carter was more exciting, even though Pierce had the better career. T-Mac was way more exciting. Kobe was a winner at that point. Duncan was a winner. Pierce did not have the team success or the flashy game to get that type of attention. Like Carter didn't have the team success, but he had a flashy game. T-Mac didn't have the team success, but he had a flashy game. So I do think that Pierce kind of got fucked early on in his career in terms of the popularity just because of how inept the organization was. And to Pierce's point about winning championships were Shaq, or then he mentioned LeBron and Bosh later, Wade had great teammates. The second best guy Pierce played with prior to Garnett and Ray was Antoine Walker. <laughs> and Dwayne Wade played with LeBron James, Chris Bosh, and Shaq. No one was winning a championship or making the Celtics part of the conversation with the group that Pierce had around him. Like, it's really a minor miracle they made the conference finals that year. I mean, just take Pierce and say... He was on the Lakers early on in his career to start it, right? Instead of Kobe. I'm not saying that Pierce would have gone down like Kobe Bryant. Kobe's a way better player than Pierce was. I'm not saying that at all. But just he would have been part of that conversation, especially playing with a guy like Shaq. And he definitely wins at least a championship with Shaq, probably two championships with Shaq, because Shaq was by far, for that three-year run, he was by far the most dominant player in the league. I mean, he's beating Tim Duncan in a playoff series, which I think Duncan had the best career out of that era of players, right? Like the pre-LeBron era, like I, I believe Duncan had a better career than Kobe, but nonetheless, I don't want to get into the whole debate about Duncan and Kobe. That's not what I'm here to do, but he would have, Pierce playing with Shaq would have been part of the national conversation. And look, the one thing I'll say when Pierce mentions the comparison with Wade, I believe Dwayne Wade had higher highs. And I'm not talking about just the championship situation. I know Pierce is a better shooter. He mentioned that, but Dwayne Wade early was a great defender, made three all NBA defensive teams. And you look at Wade post-Shaq, pre-LeBron, they had some bad teams there, but he was also ridiculous during that stretch. You go back to 2009, when he bulked up like crazy, I mean, he looked like he looked like a superhero. He averaged 30.2 points per game in 09, led the league in scoring. Like, Pierce never did anything like that. He never won a scoring title, and his career high, and he had opportunities, right? I mean, he's playing on such shitty teams. Pierce, the career high is 26.8. So Wade's three points better than Pierce's career high. So Wade was the better player, but I think Pierce has a point here. The way that people reacted to Pierce saying this is like, he's an idiot. Like Wade had the better career based on the accomplishments. I get all that. But if you listen to sort of how people responded to this, I feel like people do not realize how good of a player Paul Pierce was. And so look, if you actually listen to like, and I read the whole quote, if you listen to the whole thing, he does have a point in terms of what he's saying. Like he was not comparing himself to Kobe or LeBron. That's not what he was doing. He wasn't saying, hey, I would have been up there with LeBron or Kobe. He was comparing himself to Dwayne Wade, which Dwayne Wade, I get it, great player, all that different type of stuff. But Paul Pierce has a point when he brings this stuff up. I just, I feel like the only problem for Pierce is he's just kind of like crazy now. So he says all this shit and people don't take him seriously. But the actual point he made Makes sense. Now, like I said, Wade was the better player, had the higher highs, but it's not crazy for Pierce to say something along those lines. Maybe it's like (laughs) you don't need to say stuff like that. Like, I don't know what his thing is with Dwayne Wade. Maybe it's just the Celtics heat rivalry. So I think he goes over the top a little bit by singling out Dwayne Wade, but he actually does have a point with this one. All right. One other Celtics thing I wanted to get to is, I don't know if you've seen these videos, but Robert Williams is working out with the trainer, Aaron Miller. And 
This really is interesting because it's Rob's, really, he hasn't had a healthy offseason in years. And if you look at Rob overall, the impact numbers are always going to be there. They outscored teams the Celtics did by 10.5 points per 100 possessions this past season with Rob on the court. 97th percentile via cleaning the glass. 3.0 offensive rebounds per game. That would have ranked 12th if he qualified. He was at 3.9 two years ago, which was fourth. But if you look at Rob in terms of his game, 76% of his shots came at the rim. That's in the 87th percentile via cleaning the glass. 20% short mid-range, 20th percentile. Those are those little push shots, right, that big men need to develop now. And he shot, by the way, 88% at the rim, which is in the 98th percentile. Great. But if you look at that short mid-range, like since he didn't play a lot, he was just 13 for 35, so the numbers aren't good. But the point is he took just 35. And if you look at some of these really good big men in the league, I'm not comparing Rob's skill set with all these guys, but Bam in the short mid-range, 47%. Looney's at 46%. Jokic, and I'm not saying Looney's an elite big man, but you get the point. Like, he's developed that shot, sort of. Jokic, 62%. Nobody's going to be Jokic. Sabon is 51%. So, to me, that's the thing I want to see is that little push shot, that little floater shot that we see with these big men. And Rob's been working on some other stuff, like taking more jumpers, etc. But it's great to see him working on this type of stuff. And it is great that he actually can do this in terms of not nursing an injury. He actually can work on, like, his development, because his development in some sense, he's been great. And so I told you the impact stuff. I love Rob, but his development in some sense has sort of been halted just because he's had all these different injuries. So it is nice to see the fact that he can actually try to work on his game rather than rehabbing his body. So if he can knock down that push shot, that'd be great. I think the mid-ranger is optimistic, but we've seen guys develop in terms of, you look at say Bam, for example, if you look at his numbers on mid-rangers, long and short. So I, long mid-rangers are 14 feet out to the three-point line, right? And short mid-rangers, four feet to 14. So if you look at Bam, he goes from 27% his rookie year up to 39%, 38%. Then he's up to 45%, 47% last year. So he got better with the mid-range jumper and that push out. So that's why I'm hopeful that he's already such an impactful player as Rob. Just adding something outside of the paint or even in the paint outside of the restricted area, like other than dunks, would be huge, not just for him, but for this entire organization, right? So I am intrigued that Rob's getting this opportunity. I don't want to get like too excited about it just because of the fact that every time I get excited about Rob, he tends to get injured. But I was trying to think about how Rob and Porzingis, how it will work that fit. Because the Al one seems really easy with Porzingis on offense. Al can do the same thing that he did this past season with Rob when he's on the court, just be a spot up shooter, right? But with Rob, if you look at it on the season, 13.2% of his possessions came as the role man. Porzingis is at 14%. So Porzingis obviously has the outside game, which Rob is trying to develop, but he doesn't have it right now. Porzingis on catch and shoot threes, 121 of 208, which is 39.1%. So that's the easy answer, right? Well, you have Rob as the role man, and you have Porzingis in this, say, a hypothetical lineup of Tatum, Jalen, White, Rob, and Porzingis. You could throw Brogdon in the lineup too, instead of, say, if Jalen's getting his rest, whatever, you get the point. But if those guys are on the court together, you can have Rob rolling with four shooters around him. Because Porzingis can shoot, Tatum can shoot, White can shoot, Brogdon can shoot, right? Like, you can just surround Rob with all these shooters. And Rob's a good passer for a big man, especially he did a really nice job on the short roll last year. So that's what makes the most sense, right? Is just have Rob be the role man. The other thing is you can put Rob in the dunker spot, right? Where Porzingis did average 2.7 assists per game last year. So you do wonder, this is why I bring up the dunker spot thing, is the most the thing that makes the most sense is just have Rob be the role man and have Porzingis as a spot-up guy. But you do wonder, Porzingis, who opted into his contract so he get to the Celtics and then they work out the extension, 
is he going to be okay just sort of being a spacer with Robert Williams, right? Because this is a really talented player. He may feel like he's underutilized, right? So I think if Rob can develop that push shot and maybe even step out a little bit more, that they will have Porzingis as the role man at times as well. But the thing that makes the most sense to me is just have Robbie the role man. Like, I'm starting to get excited about what that offense can look like when Porzingis is spotting up, Tatum's got the ball, Rob's setting the screen, you already are putting the defense in the bind, and then you got White, you got Brog, you got these guys getting shots. It's just, it really is going to be difficult on defenses to guard that lineup. But the thing that's really enticing to me about the about the Rob Porzingis thing is sort of the defensive upside. So Porzingis this past season, 2.7 points per 100 better on defense, or I should say two years ago, the Wizards were 2.7 points per 100 better on defense. That was in the 73rd percentile via cleaning the glass. This past season, they were 2.1 points per 100 better. That was in the 69th percentile. So really good numbers in terms of the impact metrics. And you look at it, Porzingis was at 1.5 blocks. Rob was at 1.4. Rob was actually, if you look at it two years ago, he's at 2.2, which is fourth when he's playing more minutes. Porzingis is at 1.6, which is 10th. So both these guys are good shot blockers. We obviously know this with Rob, but Porzingis, he may get caught up a little bit in too much switching, as you can see with Rob as well. But if you have Porzingis be the guy that's covering the main big guy and Rob is the roamer, I mean, there's a lot of shot blocking out there on the court with the Celtics team. And I just think that with this lineup, with say the hypothetical is, is it's Tatum, Brown, and White, with those two guys, and I've said on multiple occasions, Jalen's going to be better on defense than he's been than he was last year. But Tatum Brown, Tatum's an elite defender. White's an elite defender. Rob's an elite defender. And if you have Porzingis, who's another guy that can block shots to go along with Robert Williams, that could just be absolutely devastating. So just getting back to the whole Rob thing, I'm going to try not to get too excited about this because he has the injury history. The track record is unavoidable. But I do think it's definitely a positive development for the Celtics team that we haven't really seen this from Robert Williams, where he actually has the opportunity to actually develop something. Like he has this opportunity in front of him. So I'm excited to see it. I am excited to see sort of how they do the lineup with Rob and Porzingis. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in at 617-396-7172. You can email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org chat in Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia, call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming, hope is here, visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call one 877 8 Hope NY or text Hope NY to 